Accelerating careers in real estate with Nick Carman. So this evening, I'm sat with Brian Diath, Director of Residential Sales for Canary Wharf Group. And in this episode, I'm really looking forward to listening to Brian as he plots his career from estate agency via Barclay, Mount Anvil, and now with Canary Wharf Group. You make it sound planned, Nick. Uh, I think you give it far more credit than it's due. <laughs> well, we've been chatting before we came online about sort of my theory about it. everyone's careers is split into chapters. I think we all start off with a period of while we're in growth and then and then we turn into a period of consolidation. And what I'm fascinated for us to do this evening is chat through a little bit about, about some of those chapters. So like every story, it's always got a beginning. So tell us, where did it all begin, Brian? Tremendously unfocused. I think you could almost look at the first seven, eight years of my working life as just being purely accidental. Came back from a year's travel, went to uni, came back from there, started sending off CVs within the first week of returning home. My dad couldn't believe I was still not at work after doing three years at uni, then a year of travel. So architecture, I suppose you could say, there was an interest from my side and relatively good socially, sent off some CVs for a wide range of things, ended up in a state agent. Went for the very first interview that I'd ever been for. The chap gave him the job within 30 seconds. He was an owner-managed business, looked me in the eye and said, I like you, Brian. I'll offer you the job. All I heard was company car. That was it. He had he had me at company car. I didn't even hear the salary. I didn't know about commission. I just knew I'd been back in the country a week. I had a job and I had a car. And so it started as an estate agent for the first seven or eight years. In the city? First 18 months, Notting Hill, Hampstead. I have very, very fond memories of Church Row in Hampstead. No fond memories of actually letting or selling anything, but it was a lovely road to work down. And Notting Hill was brilliant. Although if you looked at the house prices when I was there 23 years ago to now, it uh, it makes you cry. But there you go. So yeah, that's where I started. Then left that company. They were bought by um, much larger estate agents that consolidated a number of branches. A number of people were let go. I'd only been there for a short period of time and was one of the easier ones to, to move on. And I ended up out in the estate agency in Essex, out in Hornchurch. Right. Real change of uh, scenery then. Huge change, yeah. It's um, for a, a company called Spicer McColl at the time, became Spicer Hart, Felicity J. Lord, and ended up working out in Essex, Hornchurch, Romford, Seven Kings, and all around the, um, there for like five, six years. Yeah. Well, a very steady career then for an estate agent. Yeah, massively. Yeah, it was a huge career. It stuck <laughs> out like a sore thumb. Um, estate agency outside of London, I'd say, appeals to a certain type of person. You don't need qualifications. You perhaps would say you require the gift of the gab and ability to sell yourself as much as anything that you have. And so if you have those skills to go alongside perhaps a little bit of a intellect, that sounds like I'm giving myself a, a lot of self-importance and worth, but something a bit different. You can bring, bring some critical skills to bear, a bit of a critical faculty to the way you're going about things, then it creates a point of difference amongst those that are perhaps your peers and you're working alongside. So I got the opportunity to manage a couple of branches within you know a reasonable amount of time. Very lucky to work with some good people in the outset. I think everyone's career could go a very, very different path depending upon the people they're first exposed to. So yeah, I, I enjoyed it tremendously. But that six or seven years came to an end when I moved to Barclay Homes. And what role did you join when you, you hit Barclay? So that was sales manager down in their East Thames branch at Royal Arsenal, which is still going today. That site is never ending. 
So if we, we go back to my, my original point about these sort of chapters, mm. it's fair to say that you are, you are accelerating those early days, you're learning something new, you're absorbing everything like, like a sponge, mm-hmm. but it sounds like then you stopped learning at some point in that, in that Essex sort of agency career. Well, I think you decide, are you going to continue to be a manager of state agency branches? There's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. Do you want to become a regional manager, director, however it is? But the pathways are quite narrow. I think most of the people that I worked with in those early years, if they stayed in the industry, opened up their own estate agents. Mm -hmm. So you had an awful lot of them that became their own bosses, opened up one or two branches. I absolutely hated the thought of that. I couldn't think of anything worse. That's certainly not me. I think you have to understand your own skill set as a person, what you can or can't do, and what you might be capable of delivering. Running my own business outside of working for other people, because I always see what you do within the environment of another company is running your own business. This is Brian Death Incorporated at Canary Wharf. But the thought of running Brian Death Incorporated in a totally outside world environment, it's, it's not something I have any interest whatsoever. So what were you looking for then when you joined Barclay? A more professional environment in which to showcase myself, I suppose. I've always thought of it in those terms. So I'd had somebody else who'd been a manager in the same estate agency firm as me move to Barclays. He'd been there about six months a year and then he called and said, you absolutely have to come into new homes. He said, you will not believe how enjoyable it is. You have stock on tap you're able to deal with everything in a really professional manner. I would only say to those that stay in development and say, really, is this professional? Go and experience some other form of work or estate agency. It's a different world out there. The thought of almost having to work out what price you need to save for the value of something to get it on the market, to then spend six months working that price down to then eventually sell it is a very wearing and trying business. So to be able to come at stuff in a very sort of empirical fashion, yeah, really appealed, really appealed. It still has a um, very much a base skill set that exists in the state agency, but you can deliver it in a far more professional fashion. And so what were those early days like at Barclay? Because it's got a certain reputation, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Everyone does. And when you come out of it, people say, how long are you? I'll say four or five years. I see it as the savils of development. Everybody has done their time there. In terms of what you learn as a base skill set, it's phenomenal. It does things in the right fashion. It delivers products in the right way. And it's became, it's become an absolute beast, a beast in the good sense of the word. I think at the time I was there, there was definitely a certain culture that people spoke of, but I don't think I was as exposed to it being just the manager, if you like, of the marketing suites. So I wasn't necessarily that person that was going to a board meeting, perhaps at six o'clock in Cobham or something. I hear rumours. So that wasn't the thing I was exposed to. It got passed down, but I never felt like I was being bashed over the head for something that was happening higher up. So I think a tremendous grounding in development, the marketing of property, the setting up and running of marketing suites. Yeah, fabulous. I, I fell on my feet. And you mentioned then you were, you were there for, for five years. Going back to my, you know, that hypothesis of, of sort of growing, what, what were you developing there? What, you know, what, did, what were you perfecting? I was perfecting, I think there's a good level of internal man management and politing 
politicking, for want of a better word, I suppose. Hadn't really had to work upon that as an estate agent. An understanding of how a large business worked and in terms of if you wanted to get on, perhaps how how you needed to be taking advantage of loyalties, relationships within the business, not things I'd ever been exposed to before at all. So that was that was enlightening and that was a real eye-opener. I was in a position where through the four, four and a half years I was there, I had five MDs within the period. Mm. So I learned about how difficult that was to gain any traction when people were just passing through at such a rate. Um, and that's probably what led to me leaving after that sort of period of time. Okay. So what, what follows after this? Where do you where do you go? Mount Anvil. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Brilliant times. The first, and I think it set the template, who knows where I'll end up, but I think it set the template for whatever future holds for me in terms of I got the opportunity to decide, alongside Killian and obviously all the senior team there, what residential sales and residential development look like to a degree. Mount Anvil had never brought a private for sale building to the marketplace. It had historically been a builder for RSLs been very successful working uh, alongside RSLs. And then I think Killian Hurley, chairman, chief exec, I think just chairman now, wanted to bring in-house a lot of the skills that he was seeing being used in the rest of the sector and also wanted to take advantage of the profit opportunities because what Mount Anvil had done when it had come across any private sale is sold it very, very early in the piece to somebody else to deal with. So I was part of a little tranche of people, Andy Reid, John Spring, David Clark, that were all brought in at around a similar sort of time, uh, sort of grew as a collective. And it was a, a blank sheet of paper. So just just off off topic, how big was uh, Mount Anvil when you joined? Oh, um, probably around 60, 60, 60 people. I'd imagine, I'd be guessing slightly, although I saw one of the guys there only last week, um, about 150, 160 now. It was okay. about 130, 140. And how big did Barclay feel when you left? I was curious, is, is there an angle from big to small? No, because Barclay's very divisionalised. Yep. Um, so what I think one of the... Um, Again, I'm talking going back 15 years, but at the time it felt very siloed in that respect. I'm sure above there was a lot of sharing potentially okay. going on, but there wasn't any cross-sharing going on. So right. you felt very much part of your division. So we've had our five years at Barclay. We've had your your first experience of, of them being the new home's in-house expertise and what you've, what you've described there, you were learning, perfecting. What were you looking for then in this, in this second iteration? It was definitely growth. So it was wanting... And I've never been one for titles, but, you know, within a year, I think I remember at a very particular drink that we had just on the Euston Road. And in the drink, they announced that Brian Diath was being made up to sales director. Great day. Great day. Not something I'd asked for, something that I would definitely have been aiming for. But that showed, I think, the skill of Killian and the group of people, which included Peter Burslem, who's a fantastic ops director, in terms of they got there just before you got to them at that time. And that's, that is a real skill. That's a real skill. It's a generosity of character and nature that you don't see too much of in the industry. I certainly try and make sure that the people that I deal with in the industry have that. So yeah, looking for the ability to move on, looking to be able to impart some of the knowledge and skills that I had that might not necessarily have come from Barclay, but I thought were inherent in me, which in terms of would be a strength of purpose. I think whatever you're looking to deliver, you have to believe in 
very strongly. I can't sell something I don't believe in. I think there's more skill in those people that can manage to do that than I possess. I have to sell something that I believe in. And then alongside that, I think you deliver a very compelling case. So they gave me that opportunity to do that. And it was to see the company grow, always to see the company grow, to see it get bigger, to see it be more successful. And for me, it would have been bigger and more successful alongside the group of people that were there at that time. I found that, yeah, incredibly exciting. Okay. And from the, from their roots then of being sort of RSL builder to developer, and what, what challenges that bring then for you within that, that sales? So the challenge was in trying to bring the spec up to a level to support the value of the sites in terms of where they were located and everything like that. But when you're doing something for the first time, that's always scary. So that's scary for them. That's scary for me. You'd sort of hold hands and take the leap together. And we were successful. Now you can put it down to market, you can put it down to time and place, or you can say um, a little bit of that is combined. It, it created a little bit of magic. But it was great, fantastic few six, six, five, six years. And I'm always fascinated about how, uh, how we develop. So what do you think was driving you? Uh, being married. I think, you know, the start of my career and any thought of having a job at the outset was just around working and providing for myself and then whoever else happened to be with me along the way. But there was absolutely no plan, no sort of overarching master sheet that said, this is what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. I got married to someone who was uh, more driven than me at that time. She happened to be in the industry, nothing to do with what I was doing, but she was in the industry. And I just think that added sense of responsibility and purpose made me want to achieve, not to achieve to earn more money, but to achieve for us to do well collectively. And has that changed over the span of your career? No, no. I find whatever money you've got, it's never enough. You'll spend to the limits of whatever you have. The most comfortable I've ever felt is putting my head on the pillow at night and knowing I can pay all the bills. Above and beyond that, I'm not sure. I'm not a hugely materialistic person at all. I like very, very simple pleasures. A book, a fire, a beach, that will do me. And you uh, you joked at the outset, didn't you, about a, about a plan. Mm. Um, but these are, these are pretty determined moves you've made yeah there's, you know, you can, there's, there's plenty of logic behind each each role and, it, and it's and it's developed so looking back there looks like there's lots of logic yes <laughs> I'm, I'm a great one for calling people out on sort of post-engineering the truth because that's all we do in this industry post-engineer the truth i can see a lot of successful people talking about stuff that did not work out the way they wanted but it looks brilliant genius in hindsight so we're to believe there wasn't a plan no way oh my grief i wish i could claim there was a plan so to, so to anyone then facing the a point in their career where they've, they've got to make a decision between you know leaving a stable seat and mm -hmm. then trying something new and pushing them outside their comfort yeah. zone how do they how do they weigh up those options i would generally if you're weighing them up and it's a very very even balance i'd always go for the slight risk i'd push yourself further onwards but i do that in the knowledge that rightfully or wrongfully, I've always believed I could come back across to where I was previously or at a very, very similar company or very similar level because I've left on the very, very strongest of terms. So I would move on and I've always, well, in the people that I've mentored or spoken to through the years, I've said, so what would the worst that happened? If you made that leap and it didn't work out, what do you think would happen? And nearly all of them, because they're those sort of people, said, well, I could perhaps go back to that company in a slightly different role or in a slightly different geographical location. Or I could go back. I said, well, 
that you've lost nothing. You absolutely have lost nothing and you might gain something. I've always put myself in the place to be lucky. And if that has happened to then cross my path, I've taken it as an opportunity. I think people are all given the same opportunities. Some people just choose not to see them. Uh, They're blind to it. They see everything as being negative. I'm generally uh, a positive person. Okay. Well, that's, that's, a ni- that's a nice opportunity then for us to bring ourselves up to date. So we start at the beginning. We've covered off the, the, the middle period of the career. What's, what's been happening with you the last sort of four or five years? Well, uh, just Canary Wharf. Coming at Canary Wharf and having looked at them as a company from the outside, I think everyone has a perception of how they are. Uh, and I think in the commercial world, in terms of how they operate, second to none, absolutely. But residentially, had never done it before. And presumably even less so when you joined, what, four or five years ago? No, they'd never done it. So I was joining them. They'd never sold a flat. They had not developed one. And I was joining a pipeline of 4,700, I suppose, at the time we had planning for. I can't work out the GDV on that. I should try and remember. And most of the projects, not even in the ground. So it's a really early stage to be able to, you know, leave some imprint and be able to have some input into the decisions that were going to be made. That's what appealed. It it was, I didn't want to go and join a company which did things in a certain way, in a certain fashion. And Brian, this is what we need you to deliver upon. I wanted to go somewhere where you could say, I think this would be really good if we did it like this. And these guys, for me to say, they listen to me is a bit too all important because Sir George Iacobescu listens to himself and to other people. And if George is sat in his office looking around at 16 million square feet that's been developed and then looks across at Brian Diath, I can understand why he might play some import in his input into that. So they know what they're doing and are masters. But George is quite, he's got a lot of humility about it. He's got some very, very good people working for the company. And I'd like to think having been there six years now, I'm always proving myself and the little tiny piece that I've managed to add to the success of that. But residentially, it's been an absolute ball the past five, six years. Yeah, fantastic. I don't, I don't know Mount Anvil as well, but certainly Barclay and Canary Wharf are, are both renowned for their, for their chief execs, now, now chairmen, aren't yeah, they? How, yeah. how, I'm curious, were there, are there similarities you've, yeah, after spending time with, with both? Um, it's really interesting you say that, because I was just looking back on a couple of pieces I did for some of our agents, sometimes ask you to do some presentations for their grads or, or some someone like that. And I said I would always want to join a personality-driven company rather than a PLC generally given a rule. I think it gives you a tremendous insight and you've got a person to speak to, to gain that knowledge from. Whereas a very, very large corporate, it's very hard to get to the nub of what's made them successful. So in terms of the similarities between Tony Pidgeley and George Jacobescu, other than both being sirs, both knights, now I might get this wrong, CBEs, I've got to be careful, need to check. I think they are quietly confident in their own opinions and having looked at their track record they have every reason to be i quite i back myself i back myself strongly i think they do but i'd let them talk about why they back themselves strongly i think if you don't believe in what it is that you're presenting you shouldn't be presenting it and if you disagree with what's being said in the room then you have no right to go back there in 2 3 years time and go I thought that would fail. No, say it at the time. We'll have it out. Um, It may not go in that direction, but at least you've had a fully rounded conversation. I think I can't talk for Tony because I had very little time in his presence. But um, with Sir George, 
He's happy to hear dissenting voices. He may absolutely disagree with you, but you can disagree with what he's saying. He will want you to come back with a fully rounded explanation as to why that's your opinion. You do not say, I just feel it in my gut, George. Absolutely not. You better be able to explain your way out of that. Measure your words carefully and use them wisely. So in those early days, you've got... Sir George there on on top of the huge Canary Wharf estate and and phenomenal success for what what they were doing there. But they'd never delivered a residential apartment yet. How many many sort of disagreements did you have in those early days? Um, Disagreements, um, discussions around the strategy. I think it's very much how we're going to go about this. I think too many developers place too much of their faith in their agents. Um, I've got some tremendous colleagues, acquaintances, peers in agency, and I think there are some very, very good people. But that agent may well be launching 100 projects that year. You are one of them. Uh, in terms of who this is most important to, let me be in no, no, no doubt whatsoever that that project is more important to me as a sales director than it is to any MD or chairman of any other agency. That decision will be ours. And if it's me that's being held responsible for it, I'll be responsible for that strategy. So I'm delighted to have a conversation with the agents, but the agents do not have the time that we have to focus on our projects. If they know my Or the pro- risk. Or the, they've got no risk profile. Uh, one of the things I mooted with a few of them 18 months ago is you should invest in each one of the projects. So I will pay you a higher fee, but you have to put money in at the front end. I said, what a delightful way. I would deal with you on that basis solely as opposed to the multi-agency fashion in which we all see it today. So if there's going to be a decision being made or if a decision is made and it's the wrong one, it's not the agent's decision. That's my decision. So I will gladly live and die by the decisions that you make. It's a much healthier way to be as opposed to leaning back, looking across the table and going, agents, can you believe it? Well, you mentioned looking back then, haven't you? I, I can't help feel that there's, there is a bit of a, a similarity here between the, the Mount Anvil early days of setting something up and, play, and, you know, and being able then to see your fingerprints on, on what that product was being and then with Canary Wharf. Mm, absolutely, yeah. No, I, I don't disagree at all. Does that mean then the, that those earliest days are the ones for which you either enjoy most or feel most suitable to? Yeah, definitely. It is. I, I think I much prefer the creating um, than I do the tinkering, the oiling, the the making sure it's all working fine. I much prefer that. It's a bigger risk profile, but there's a much, much bigger reward if you get it right at the end. I like seeing the people that I work with be successful. There's something very, very pleasurable about that. And I've worked with a, a number of very, very good people, either as JVs on projects or that have worked with me. I've worked with a number of people for a number of years now. They have followed me from company to company, whether that's because they're unemployable elsewhere, who knows? But anyway, <laughs> they're lumbered with me. Uh, and I find that if you're going to say to me, would I rather be European champions uh, 1967 Celtic, where they were all born within, and again, fact check, please, five miles of the stadium, or would I rather be European champion of perhaps uh, Chelsea or somewhere else where it's um, international? I'd much rather be champion with my boyhood friends that all live within sight of the stadium. That collectively is a much, much greater reward. So everyone I've asked on this this podcast has got something in common, and it's that I th- I think they they have enjoyed a success filled career. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and they've they've enjoyed a series of growth periods in 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 that career. What I'm curious to do is find out a bit more about sort of your your views on success. Have they changed over time? I think individuals' views of success are different, and that's it. Because I I think you're bringing people on to hear who you view as being successful in the industry. If you spoke to some people that weren't successful, you'd find some of them had tremendous growth spurts, but then perhaps some of their employment coincided with the credit crunch or a recession. There is some luck involved. I, I hate to you know come back to it, but I think there is some luck involved in how you get through those periods. I remember giving a presentation to the Bank of Ireland in 2008 with Mount Anvil in a privately hired, very small cinema where we showed them how we were going to repay that loan. Uh, that was a tremendously nervous time, but it was so exciting. It was fantastic. I, I Even exams that I might not have revised for as a kid, and I didn't revise for lots of exams as a kid, I found brilliantly and thrillingly exciting because it was a moment of truth, and I love that. I absolutely love it. I love the nervous energy around doing something that is actually impactful, whether or not it's successful or not, and that gives me my A game. So you brought us back then to the, the early early school days. That's a nice segue into one of my, my the next questions I was going to ask. What lessons do you think you would have liked to have learnt earlier in your career? Wow, all the stuff that I tell my kids. Do do apply yourself. Just get the best that you can from you. That's all you ask. If the best that exists within you is to to be doing the job I'm doing, then do it if that's what you want to do. But if the best that exists within you is to be a genome sequencing scientist, then unearth that. That's all. I've got two girls, 13 and 15. A challenge. Uh, They're not too bad. But that's all I'd ask. They give themselves the very best opportunity. I did not give myself that opportunity through definitely my schooling. I can't, I don't know why. Didn't exist within me at the time. There's definitely a different person now than I was then. Perhaps didn't see a future that might have existed as it is now. I'd been the first person to go to university or any sort of higher education out of both sides, my father's and my mother's uh, family. This isn't one of those stories where poor boy makes good. It's just that the expectations placed upon you are very low and not in a bad way. Mum would have emphasised the importance of education, but they wouldn't have seen what what lay beyond that education. The pathway wasn't there. You know, I'd encourage my children to join a company which allows them as a pathway through it. I know there's no job for life anymore, but give yourself the very best opportunity is all that I would say to most. So we've talked about Canary Wharf, we've talked about Sir George, we've talked about what they were best best known for, but but I'm really curious, what, what was it then that really grabbed your attention when you were at Mount Anvil, at that sale, you'd had the sales director title, what was it that made you want to jump then into, into Canary Wharf? Well, I, I actually went out and saw a large section of the market. It was a fabulous time. I think you get so wrapped up in the day-to-day that you don't actually sometimes come up for air. And I went met, went and met some of the most brilliant companies and people, Canary Wharf being one of them. I think just in terms of the projects, they, they are exemplar projects. I will, and I'm very happy to state this as I've stated to the people that have bought the apartments, never be involved in a building as good as One Park Drive. It's a, a tower by Herzog de Muron. If you haven't worked with them, you'll be aware of some of their buildings and you can never be quite sure about how good, bad or ugly they are. You know, you just see the end products. How much does it cost? You know, does it work? Can you make it work? Their rigour, 
to get that building to work from a residential perspective and what they've created in terms of external facade and then the internal treatment is absolutely exceptional. Um, easy for me to say, but the people that are buying there are buying solid gold. People will be talking about that building in a 100 years' time. You'll say, I live in Canary Wharf, and they'll go, not in that Herzog de Muron building, and they absolutely will. So for me, to even have any part of that was hugely exciting, hugely exciting. And then the project we had down at South Bank Place by the Shell Tower, these are world-class developments. And this is where I come back to part of the luck. You know, Canary Wharf chose me to be the one that was going to launch them and sell them and manage them through that period. And I'd like to think I've repaid that faith. But I've certainly been lucky in being able to come to the market at a time when they were looking for someone for those buildings, because those buildings are almost unmatched. So the buildings themselves, the opportunity to work you know, for someone like Sir George, who is renowned in the industry for his, uh, it sounds all incorrect, doesn't it? But he does have a vast intellect. He really does. He wouldn't want me to say it. But, you know, it's it's a different level. You're, you're dealing with someone, he shouted something, shouted, he didn't shout, he mentioned politely something the other day and he made a, a quiet aside and said, um, oh, Brian, the age of innocence for everyone. And I went, oh, that was an Edith Wharton book, wasn't it? And he was like, Oh, he quite liked that. <laughs> you know, small things like that, you know, for, from a, a cultural and an artistic standpoint, he's a very important person in London and I've been lucky enough to work with him. For a sales professional, you're incredibly humble, aren't you? I just don't, well, what's the point in being otherwise? I have no idea why you would want to be anything other than that. It served me well. Well, cer- certainly, certainly. I just, I, I've got no time for those of bombast and a hugely inflated sense of their own importance. They feel that that's the image you have to project to be successful, which is a real shame because then that sort of self-perpetuates the myth of what you need to be to be successful. I can be very stern and I can be, I can certainly be very, very assured of my own beliefs when it comes to development, but that's not at the expense of listening to everybody else's. But if I'm going to be responsible for it, I need to believe in it. But um, yeah, I would be humble and and humility. I'm not the one selling all of those flats. I'm not sat there convincing 500 individual sets of people to part with their money for that apartment. You've got magnificent teams around you. And I'm lucky enough as a peer group to have some brilliant people in the industry to work alongside and to be able to fall back on. I think certain people in the industry do understand it, but you're not just dealing with people at your company. I think there's a certain level of people that understand that there's more than enough success out there for it to be shared collectively. Development in London can be a collective success, not our success at the expense of the tower next door or the development just down the road. And there's a good bunch of us that make sure that the lessons learned are shared wider than you would potentially imagine. And that's nice. That is nice. That's that's, that's quite magnanimous, isn't it? But given sort of the challenges the sort of resi sales had faced over the last couple of years. But we all face the same challenges. And I can assure you there are no rocket scientists um, out there amongst us coming up with a silver bullet to cure all of our sales ills. So, you know, nobody has it. VR was it potentially two or three years ago. I've never seen such a nonsense in my entire life. Sticking a pair of goggles on someone to buy a £5 million flat. 
unbelievable. It's like the emperor's new clothes. We're being sold things all the time purely on the basis of someone has something to sell. So to them, they have to come up with the value behind it. Google Glass, VR, whatever it is. I'm not a Luddite by any stretch of the imagination, but I am a, a believer in the more rarer something becomes, and I think human connection is becoming rarer and rarer, then the more I want my teams and the people I deal with to lean towards it. Yeah, it's hard actually meeting people, but we can all make time for that. And the sort of people we're dealing with and the sort of sums they're looking to spend, they deserve a piece of our time and they deserve the piece of our salespeople's times. So I would be going more towards that and human contact, I think, within the industry is a good thing, per okay. se. I asked you earlier about sort of, you know, what, what, I, what I thought I was noticing there in, in, in this, the commonality between joining Mount Anvil and then the opportunity to, to once more replicate those very earliest phases with someone on a bigger platform like Canary Wharf. Mm. And if that is what you know, what drove you then? What drives you now? Now that now this is a a well-oiled rolling machine. Well, it's a, a well-oiled rolling machine which only in the last five months has actually delivered someone to live in one of its buildings. So it's been a well-oiled machine that's needed a lot of oiling to get to this point. So it, it's been a, a six-year journey to get to the first occupier of the first building. You know, we are still a year away, eight months away from occupying One Park Drive. You know, that for me will be a landmark day. I cannot wait for that. But then it's 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 the projects after. So these are only the first phases of multi-phase developments. Woodwolf itself will be another six, seven, eight years in development. There are some unbelievable buildings still to come down the line. Um, we own North Quay, which is a five-acre site just to the north of Canary Wharf. There's lots to be doing. There there are lots of challenges and new parts of the business to set up. So, yeah, I definitely find the creating more exciting. Doesn't mean that I can't get out the oil can and tinker from time to time. But I think the creation of new teams for new projects is something that definitely drives me. Brilliant. So I'll ask you one last question, Graham. And that's on the benefit of anyone who's listening to this, who might be feeling like they have stop growing right now. They might be feel like they're in a period of consolidation and are looking to to unearth something that will trigger that next period of growth in them. What would be your advice to them? I would say constantly be on the lookout for that opportunity. And you can create it in yourself if you're looking for it. It's amazing how many people consider themselves lucky that happen to walk across uh, some money on the floor. Or people say, you're so lucky, you've got a great set of friends. Or you're so lucky, you go here and, and great things happen. They, they create those opportunities for themselves. So don't wait for it to happen. Be on the lookout, but also create that opportunity. I've occasionally had people contact me absolutely out of the blue, say, Brian, I was at something the other day and I heard you or I work for an agent and I'm looking for some advice in the industry. You'll be astonished at how generous more people than you think are. I think you, people will be surprised. But if you don't ask, you don't get. It's, it's very, very unlikely you're going to send an email to someone, not someone like me, whoever you're going to send that email to, and they're going to come back and go, I have no time for you. Please do not communicate with me. Make it hard for me. Make it hard for them. Say, you know, I'm working here. I've looked at what you've done. I've seen what you've done. I'd love to come and have a chat with you for half an hour. Who wouldn't be flattered by that? flatter them, take advantage of the relationship, you know, show yourself to your best advantage and be aware that might happen at any time. That could happen at any time. So, you know, just just look out, be lucky and you'll be astonished at how lucky you can be when you're looking out for it. 
Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time this evening, mate. I've, I've really, really enjoyed it. Not at all. I thoroughly always enjoy talking about myself, my favourite topic. That humbleness has disappeared. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by McDonald & Company, the leading real estate recruiter. To discuss any matters with Nick Carman, please contact him via the email address in your show notes. And don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episode as it's released.